0: And I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 this morning. As I began to read Titus and consider the letter of Titus, I realized that it's very appropriate for us as a church to consider the message of Titus. Because even as we read this letter... I know that it's addressed to Titus, and we see that in the opening verses, and of course our Bibles you know, have, a, have a title on the top of the book. You know, we understand this was written as a letter, not as a book in the sense that we think of it today, um, and yet it was addressed to Titus, but there's, there's certainly reason for us to believe as we read this letter that it was intended for more than just Titus that in fact, Paul's expectation of this letter was probably that it would go to the church on Crete, or the churches on Crete, that even though it was addressed to Titus, his message was really for the people in the churches. And so it's really an explanation to the churches, if you will, of what Titus's mission was that he was supposed to be doing It was a way of helping the churches and the Christians on Crete to understand why Titus was doing what he was doing, why Paul had given him these specific instructions to appoint elders in the churches, to to confront error, to teach the older men and the older women so that they would then turn and teach the younger men and the younger women. And all of these things that Titus was supposed to do, no doubt he was already doing. Remember, this letter was given were sent to Titus, but Titus had already been left there with these instructions. So Paul is reiterating instructions, maybe offering more of an explanation here, but in some ways it's almost like Paul was trying to help the people in the church to understand why Titus was doing what he was doing, why that was the right thing to do. And so as we read the letter of Titus and as we've studied through it this fall and, and just coming to the close to the end of the year here finishing it up i think it's helpful for us as a church to think about what are the expectations how is the church supposed to function what is the leadership supposed to be like what are the responsibilities of the leaders of the church what are the responsibilities of the members of the church these are some of the issues that we see brought up in the book of titus when we come to the final verses of the letter, and it's typical of, of Paul and really typical of letter writing in general, you know, you kind of get to the end of the letter, you're trying to wrap things up, you're, you're going to offer your, your final salutation and you're going to close the letter. And before he does that, it's very common for Paul to mention maybe other people who are of interest and maybe give some instructions about them. So there's some practical instructions we read through these last verses from verse 12 down to verse 15 and, and you might read these verses and think well okay all he's doing is closing the letter there's really not much here maybe if you read this this week anticipating the message you read it and thought oh, I wonder what in the world pastor is going to do with these verses because it doesn't really seem to be more logistics than anything you know hey these guys are going to come over here and those guys are going to go there and make sure you take care of this and do that and it's almost like travel plans well I think that there's some real value in these last verses of the letter because I think even as Paul is is bringing the letter to a close, he still has in his mind the, the main ideas that he is trying to communicate to Titus and through Titus to the churches on Crete, to the Christians there, who need to understand what the Christian life is really all about. And so as we as we close the book here... I think the message that Paul is communicating to Titus and to these Christians is how to be a fruitful Christian. How to be a fruitful Christian. And I think there's three principles in these verses that Paul kind of brings out or rather that I want to bring out that, Paul, that I think undergird what Paul is saying. Before we get into that though, let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, We come to you this morning again, mindful of our place. We are creatures that you have made. We are oftentimes confused. We often misunderstand things. And especially when we're dealing with your word, it's very easy for us to miss the point. I pray that you'd help us this morning. Help us to understand what you are communicating through your word. Help us to receive it as it is in truth, the very word of God. I pray that even as we meditate on your scriptures this morning, that it would transform how we think about our lives as Christians, what it means to be a Christian, how we ought to treat one another, how we are responsible for for, for one another. And I pray that you would guide us into truth this morning. Help me as I speak, that instead of detracting or hiding or, or, uh, or clouding anything by my own words or my own uh, weakness, that instead you would use me as your instrument to communicate your truth so that your spirit can, can work powerfully here. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at what he says here. Titus chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says to Titus, When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus... Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. It's interesting as we begin to consider what Paul is saying. Verse 12 is kind of an interesting verse. I want to start there. I think there's actually a principle that is really undergirding what Paul is discussing here in verse 12. Notice what he says there. Paul says he's going to send uh, he's going to send a man to Titus. He doesn't know who it's going to be. It might be Artemis or it might be Tychicus. And he says, Titus, when this man reaches you, I want you to come diligently. I want you to make an effort, an earnest effort to to meet me in Nicopolis. Paul says, that's where I've decided to spend the winter. And so he instructs Titus, Titus, I want you to come and meet me. Obviously, again, this seems to suggest that Paul expects that by the time Titus gets the letter, he will already have done what Paul had instructed him to do. So what's the use of this whole letter if Titus is expected to already have done it? That's kind of what I was getting at earlier. I think that the letter, though Titus was to read it, it was really for the the churches on Crete. It was really for them to understand what Titus was doing and had been doing, the work that was ongoing, and what was supposed to happen. And there's actually a little bit more than that here because... I think Paul wanted the believers there on Crete to understand what their responsibilities were when it came to the church. That's why this letter was going to them. That's why Titus was going to receive the letter, was going to pass it on to the churches, and then he was going to leave. Because the churches needed to take responsibility for being set right. Being set in order. Remember, uh, all the way back in the very first chapter, in the opening uh, part of the the letter, Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Titus. The church in Crete had been, it was in the process of being planted and organized and established. And Paul said, Titus, you need to carry on that work of making sure that the church is properly arranged. It's set right. But you know, you know this. I know this. That Titus could come into those churches and he could come in and he could say, Well, we're going to appoint this man to, to be the, the elder here. We're going to appoint this man over here to be an elder, and this guy—he's good deacon material over here. And, and that—and we're going to appoint these people, and we're going to set all this stuff up. But the church itself, the congregation itself, has to recognize what is being done and why. I don't want to get off into a whole uh, into a whole rabbit trail here on church uh, government. But we know this to be a fact. It's just a simple fact that top-down authority only works if the down listens to the top, right? I mean, the person who's in charge at the top can only be in charge if the other people listen and follow, right? A leader is only a leader if other people are following him. We, we recognize this in our government. That's part of the reason why our government is established in the way that it is as American, in this in this nation. Why? Because we realize that our leaders govern at our consent, at the consent of the governed. Well, the fact of the matter is, like it or not, that's the way things work. And that's the way things work in the church, too. You see, Titus can come in and say all he wants to say, but, but the church needs to understand... They need to know who their leaders are. They need to know that their leaders are qualified. They need to recognize that. It's important for the church to understand that. That's why Paul went through in chapter 1, and he explained in detail what the church leaders are supposed to be like. What is an elder supposed to look like? How is he supposed to act? What kind of character is he supposed to have? What kind of teaching should you expect from him? These are things that Paul is writing So that Titus will know who to appoint. But more than that, so that the churches on Crete will know which leaders to receive. See, Because Titus is going to be there for a while and then Titus is going to leave. And maybe Aristarchus or Tychicus comes, but they're not going to stay there forever either. Eventually, these churches on Crete are going to have to stand on their own. And what does a church do when it has to stand on its own? Well, it has to learn how to identify leaders, qualified leaders, biblical leaders, men who, are, uh, who have the character qualities of Titus chapter 1, above reproach, and, and the whole list, right? Men who are able to teach faithfully the words of God. And the church has to be able to recognize those men. Has to be able to, to say, no, no, you, yeah, this, this guy is qualified. This guy has character that is exemplary and he's able to teach the word of God. This guy over here, not so much. We're not going to follow this guy who is not living rightly or he's not teaching properly. We're going to reject him. I know what I'm saying too. I know how dangerous this is. I'm telling you guys, you're the, the, the authority here. But that's really how it works. See? The congregation has to receive has to receive these elders, has to recognize these elders. Their authority, as far as it goes, as far as it exists, is exercised through the teaching of the word of God. The congregation is to recognize that and submit to it, not because the guy up front is the guy, the man in charge, but because he's speaking the truth of the word of God. That's the principle that Paul is communicating through this letter. And the people on Crete are supposed to receive it. And guess what, Titus, you're not going to be there forever. So do these things and then you're going to move on. But the churches need to understand how this works. What kind of men are to be elders? What kind of men are to be the the ones who are teaching and instructing? And every member of the church, Titus 2, the whole chapter, every member of the church, from the older men and the older women to the younger men and the younger women, is to be growing in godliness and in passing on what they have learned to others. That's how it's supposed to work. And so you as a church need to take seriously your responsibilities here. That's really what Paul is saying here. And I know you go, well, that seems like you're reading a lot between the lines. Well, let me, let me show you what I'm getting at here. Paul says, I'm going to send Artemis to you or Tychicus, one of these two guys. Who were Artemis and Tychicus? Well, the only thing we know about Artemis is what we read right here. Okay, That's the only thing we know about him. His name is only mentioned here. But Tychicus is somebody we know a, a good deal about. Tychicus first appears in the pages of Scripture to us on, on, in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, Tychicus is listed, along with several other men who joined the Apostle Paul. They were his traveling companions for a time. What were they doing? Well, in Acts 20, they were gathering together a collection from the churches uh, for the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem had been suffering persecution. The believers there were in desperate need. And so the other churches took up collections. Now, there was no um, Western Union... Do people use Western Union anymore? I don't know. There was no Western Union. There was no, like, PayPal or, or you know, some of the other things with your phone. You can just, like, I've just seen, you know, I, I'm I'm not techie enough, I guess, to have that. But some of these, you know, you have your phone, you have the app, and I can send you money on my phone. I've seen commercials for that, you know, sitting there on the couch. And they're like, here, here is your money, you know. There was none of that stuff. How are you going to send money from, you know, one side of the Mediterranean to the other? Well, you got to collect the money, you got to give it to somebody, and he's got to take it. So, what kind of person do you do? do? If you're a church and you've gathered a whole... You've you've spent weeks and weeks and weeks gathering funds and gathering money to aid and help a church that's hundreds of miles away. What kind of person from your own congregation do you choose? Do you just draw names out of a hat? (laughs) I don't think so. No. No, no, you look around the congregation and you look for a man who has certain qualities, right? Right? You want someone who's trustworthy, who's faithful, who's dependable, who's known for his honesty and integrity. That's the kind of person you pick. And then you say, listen, brother, we're going to give this money to you, and you're going to take it, and you're going to deliver it for us as our representative. And we, we are confident that it will get where it's going, and none of it will be lost, and all of it will be accounted for, because we know you, and we know you're a man who is faithful in the Lord. That's what the churches did, and so Tychicus is one of these men. Tychicus, we're told, there comes from Asia. Asia is a region, but the primary city in Asia was the city of Ephesus. So it's possible that Tychicus came from the church at Ephesus, big church, major church in that 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 uh, in that early church there. And so we we recognize right there that Tychicus must have been a man of stellar reputation, a trustworthy man to be carrying these funds. But we read more about him. Paul writes about him in, in both the letter of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 21, and also Colossians 4 and verse 7. Paul writes about Tychicus. And apparently Paul sent those letters with Tychicus back to his home area to deliver the letters to Ephesus and Colossae to those churches. But Paul wrote about Tychicus in those letters. And what he, what he said about him was this. He called him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. That's pretty high praise from the Apostle Paul for this man Tychicus. And we don't know much about Artemis, but if Paul is saying, well, it's either Artemis or Tychicus, I'm not sure which. My guess is we can safely say Artemis was, was the same kind of guy. Someone that Paul trusted. Someone that Paul considered a faithful brother and a fellow servant in the Lord. And so, if they're going to come and replace Titus in this ministry, Paul is concerned about the church there on Crete, that they learn and understand the message. The message of leadership. That we need godly leaders. Titus was supposed to appoint godly men, elders in the churches. And Paul wanted to make sure that work was established and firmly established. And so he says, Titus, you're going to stay there until your replacement comes. Because we need to have godly leaders in the church. And Paul was communicating that by the way he structured his ministry there to the churches on Crete. By sending Artemis or Tychicus. They're going to come. They're going to replace you, Titus. That's really what Paul is saying here. Titus was supposed to wait for his replacement because the church needs godly leaders. The work yet to establish those churches was not yet finished And so Paul says, Titus, don't leave yet. I'm going to send someone. They're going to come and replace you. But when they do, I want you to come diligently. Now, there's another point that Paul gets to in the next verse. Verse 13, he says, Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. These two verses are important. Again, I know it may seem kind of odd to say, well, how important is it? He's saying, send these two guys on a journey. Well, understand here that Zenos and Apollos likely are the carriers of this letter. So they're likely traveling from Paul to Crete on their way to somewhere else. Now, what do we know about these men, Zenos? Well, Zenus is another guy that we don't know anything about. He's only mentioned here. All Paul says is he's the lawyer. What does that mean? Well, if Zenus is a Jewish lawyer, then that probably means he's an expert in the Old Testament law. Remember, in the Gospel, several times there were lawyers that came to question Jesus. Okay? Those lawyers, that's the same word here, and it has the idea they were experts in Old Testament law. So they were questioning Jesus about the, the, the Old Testament law and his views and, and, and his, his teachings. Now, if Zenus is Greek, as his name would suggest, because it's a Greek name, not really a Hebrew name, then lawyer means a lot more like what we think of a lawyer today. He was a legal expert. He was somebody who, who practiced law. In either case, again, we don't know a whole lot about that. We can't, we can't pin that down uh, any further. But again, where we don't know much about Zenus, we look at the next guy, Apollos, we know a lot more about Apollos. Again, Apollos is somebody who is is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. He is first identified for us in Acts chapter 18. And if you remember the story there, Apollos showed up in Ephesus where Paul's good friends, Aquila and Priscilla, were. And Apollos showed up there, and he was a believer. He only knew about the baptism of John. He didn't know the full truth about what Jesus had revealed, but he he believed in the Christ. He was a faithful Jew, and he he believed, and he showed up there, and he was was preaching. He was convincing people, arguing with people about the the baptism of John the Baptist, telling them, you know, repent, the kingdom is at hand, and and all these things. And what did Aquila and Priscilla do? Well, they, they realized that Apollos just doesn't know the full truth, so they take him aside. And they instruct him to understand the truth. I love that. We, we, when we went through Acts, I, I remember dealing with that. It was such a beautiful um, uh, passage because it, it shows us the, the grace not to, not to just come down with like a hammer on him, you know. Hey, you're wrong, you know, blast him to the side. But instead to say, you know, hey, you, you've got some things right. Let's help you understand the rest. You know, let's instruct you rather than, than, than beat you over the head with what you don't know. And sometimes we we can be so harsh, we need to be more gracious like Aquila and Priscilla. And they take Apollos aside and they instruct him. And and with that knowledge, Apollos begins to travel and preach. And he ends up in the city of Corinth. And and things went so well for Apollos in Corinth as he was preaching the gospel. That there actually began to be a faction in the church that was uh, was following or was uh, aligning themselves with Apollos. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about this in verse 12. He says, each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. So in Corinth, Apollos' influence was so great that he was being, you know, people were kind of comparing him with Peter and Paul and Christ. And saying, well, these guys are, you know, well, I'm a follower of Christ. Well, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Apollos. That's how influential his ministry was. He was a gifted speaker and apparently a faithful preacher and teacher of God's word. There's no, there's no evidence uh, anywhere that, that Paul and Apollos ever had any conflict. Paul's references to him in 1 Corinthians, the problem wasn't Apollos. The problem was the people in the church who were, who were dividing over all these other things, The problem, it wasn't Apollos' fault. Certainly Apollos was as frustrated with that as Paul was. Because there's no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence is clear that that Paul considered Apollos to be an asset, to be a tremendous gift to the church, along with Zenos here, again, who he mentions in the same breath, as, as these are partners, these are guys who are traveling together and ministering together. And what does he say? He says, Titus, send them on their journey with haste. Now, that doesn't really come through very uh, effectively in the translation. Because the idea of sending them on their journey is equipping them fully. So it has the idea of of preparing them or furnishing them for their journey. And this word actually conveys the idea of going partway with them. That you would make sure they were outfitted for their journey. And then you would travel along the journey for part of the way with them. To make sure they got off well, you know. Make sure they got to their, like, this is like, I was thinking about it when we took, um, a couple weeks ago, we took Cheyenne down to the airport in Chicago. And, uh, and then you take a 16-year-old girl and you're dropping her off at O'Hare. You don't just, like, pull up at the front gate and be like, hey, we'll see you, you know. <laughs> um no, you know, you park the car and, and, and then you go in and you get all of her stuff and we, we you know, make sure she's at the right gate. You know, we went sure, and made sure she got her luggage checked in, made sure everything was taken care of. You know, and we, we waited with her. We went as far with her as we could. You know, we couldn't go past security, but we went as far with her as we could before we said goodbye and dropped her off. Why? Because we wanted to make sure she got where she was going safely. And that's kind of the idea here. Make sure they have everything for their journey, and even go with them part way to make sure that they get off you know, where they're supposed to go. This is a, there's a tremendous amount of effort to be put in here. And I think this sentence really encapsulates Paul's view of how the church is supposed to care for those people who serve and who minister in the gospel. Paul is talking here about Zenas and Apollos, two traveling ministers, two men who, who are, are missionaries, who are preachers, who are teachers of the Bible. And Paul says, listen, you need to furnish them for their journey, that they lack nothing. And then notice he goes on in verse 14, because it's not just Titus's job. Notice he expands this, verse 14. He says, and let our people also, let our people also, Well, who are our people? That's the believers. That's the Christians on Crete. Paul says, listen, Titus, make sure you send these guys, equip them, furnish them for their journey. Oh, yeah, and let our people also take part in this. This is supposed to be a group effort, Titus. There's no expectation that Titus alone would have the resources to to furnish the journey for these two men and take care of them on their way. But clearly, the collected resources of the churches on Crete would be plenty to be able to make sure these men had what they needed, were fully equipped for their ministry. And the idea here that Paul is saying is that the church needs to be taking care of their ministers. He says here, Let our people learn to maintain good works. That phrase, maintain good works, is exactly the same phrase that he used back in verse 8 when he said this is what we're supposed to focus on. Right? Look back at verse 8 with me. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. It's almost as if Paul is saying here at the end of the letter, it's almost as if he's saying this, I told you that we're supposed to focus on living out the gospel in everyday life. You know, we've believed in God, and then we're supposed to live that out by doing good works. It should show itself in our behavior and our actions toward others. And then he says, now here's an opportunity for you to do it. Let's put it to the test. Let me see how well you're listening and learning to what we're going to do. You got these two men, they're coming through, they're ministers. They need to be equipped for their journey. They need to have some resources. They need to have some financial and material support. So help them, equip them, provide for them, take care of them and furnish them along the way so they get where they're going safely and without any lack. That, Paul says, is how you're going to demonstrate that you understand what it means to maintain good works. What it means to live as a Christian. To live out your faith in real, tangible ways by doing good for others. And then he even goes on in that verse to explain what maintaining good works means. To meet urgent needs, he says. Okay. That, uh, the, the, the little expression there, urgent needs, it, 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 it literally means necessary needs or needful needs. It's kind of a weird way to say it. You would, wouldn't say it that way in English. okay? But in Greek, that's how it's said. Needful needs. Okay, <laughs> The things that are necessary. Make sure that they have all of their necessary needs provided for. All of their urgent needs. The things that are really important. Make sure those are taken care of. Now I said that I think these verses here are about caring for those who minister in the church. I think that's the general principle that Paul has in view. Understand these men, Zenos and Apollos, these aren't employees of the churches on Crete. But... Can I challenge you with this thought? That we shouldn't think of any of our ministers as employees of the church. Whether pastors or missionaries. Titus and the believers on Crete, Paul challenges them to provide support for these men. Why? What's the purpose here? What's the point? Why do we support them financially? Because if you don't do that, then Zenus, who's a lawyer, is going to have to find some, you know, some law, legal work on Crete to pay his passage for him and Apollos. And Paul, Apollos, who's a, a teacher, is going to have to get a job teaching and doing some work so he can pay his own way. And so instead of being able to focus on their gospel ministry, these two men are going to have to occupy themselves with providing for themselves financially. And their ministry is going to suffer. That's what Paul is suggesting here. You need to deal with their their needs, take care of their physical and material needs. Why? So they can get on their journey of the ministry that God has called them to. Now in this case, they're just passing through. Delivering a letter to Titus, passing on through. We have no indication that they're staying on Crete for any length of time. But that's kind of the point. Because the support here is not wages for services rendered it 's not that that Paul's not saying, listen, pay them for their work because they're going to live there for a while they're going to work in the you know and you're going to bet then, then, then you just pay their way no you're going to help them on their way as they go somewhere else to minister for the lord and you're going to support them it's it's financial support to equip them in the service of christ that's why when we talk about our missionaries and you've got pictures on the walls here of all the missionaries that we support we use that word support why because they're not our employees we don't pay them we support them we support them for what purpose so that they can focus on preaching the gospel training believers raising up church leaders establishing churches planting churches training nationals all over the world in these countries in which they live why don't we expect him to go get a job? Why don't we expect Paul Van Low down in, in, uh, in, in Brazil to get a job? You know, why don't we expect, uh, you know, Brother Bucher over there in Spain, you know, who's lost his wife last year, why don't we expect him to go get a job and just provide for himself and his family? Because we are supporting him so that he doesn't have to worry about that. That's the point. That's how that system works. That's why we do it that way. So he can focus on one thing. Focus on the ministry there that God has called him to. That's why we support them. And I suggest to you, that's how you ought to look at your pastor too. That's how you ought to look at your pastor. You're not paying an employee. You're providing support for a minister so that he can focus on the spiritual ministry, preaching the word and prayer, without having to to figure out how he's going to provide for himself and his family by some other means. I know there's some people that really think that it's a good thing for pastors to be bivocational, to pastor a church and have a job, and and there are certainly are situations where that's necessary. And there may even be certain circumstances where that's advantageous. But, I would submit to you, based on the reading of the New Testament, that it shouldn't be the expectation. I'm not saying that because I'm unwilling to work. In fact, let me be really clear what the Bible says about this. Because Paul talks a great deal about this in the New Testament. In fact, he speaks of the pastors and the elders in 1 Timothy 5, and he explains that it is right for elders to receive financial support from the congregation. But he explains this. He says it this way, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. The word labor means to To wear yourself out. To toil in and become fatigued. And so financial support is not a reward for someone who won't work. Financial support is intended for someone who is laboring in the ministry that God has called. And so we support them. Not as employees, but as ministers of God. We provide support. Paul says, this is how you can demonstrate that you've learned the lesson that when you trust Christ and you become a believer, it changes you. It causes you to live out your faith in good works, to maintain good works, a demonstration of the reality of your faith in Jesus Christ. We understand that. I think we need to be careful that we don't ever get the cart ahead of the horse. We don't do the good works in order to obtain salvation. We don't do the good works in order, to, uh, in order to to repent of sin. We do the good works because we have been saved, because God has granted us repentance. Let me suggest to you really quickly here that there are at least two benefits in doing this, one of them is very clearly stated in this verse. The other one, I think, may be reasonably inferred from the context. The first is the clear one. Paul says at the end of verse 14, that they may not be unfruitful. That's a double negative. You wouldn't say that in English. We don't speak in double negatives. That's improper. But in Greek, it's fine. Okay, it means what we say, that they may not be unfruitful. We don't want them to be unfruitful. We want them to be fruitful. So Paul says, Titus, you have a responsibility, but not just you, all of the believers. Why? So that they can be fruitful. So they can live out and and produce fruit. By supporting the servants of Christ and equipping them fully for the ministry. Paul is challenging them. To, bear, to, 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 to produce the fruit of their salvation through doing good works, specifically caring for and supporting those who are ministering there. William Hendrickson put it this way. He said, Though grace is the root, noble deeds are the fruit of the tree of salvation. Though grace is the root, noble deeds are the fruit of Paul says to Titus, listen, we don't want God's people to be unfruitful. We don't want them to be barren. So challenge them to put feet to their faith. Challenge them to live out their faith by supporting these missionaries who are going to be passing through. So this is a challenge we have from the Apostle Paul. Serving God's people, especially... Providing the needs of ministers of the gospel is an important way for believers to develop the fruit of salvation. Paul says it in a very similar way to the Philippians when he wrote this. Even in Thessalonica, he says, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul says, you minister to me materially, but I realize there is a spiritual fruit that is produced because of that. Paul says, that's what I'm after, the spiritual fruit. I want to see that in you. Now, the other benefit, I said there were two. The first benefit is it produces fruit. This is the demonstration of our faith as the fruit is grown in our life as we demonstrate that through these these good works. The second thing is this, and it's, again, I think reasonably inferred. Since Apollos and Zenos won't have to beg, they won't have to borrow, and they won't have to engage in other employment in order to, to provide for themselves, their ministry will be even more effective. Whatever ministry they might have on Crete, as well as wherever they go next, their ministry will be more effective. And as a result, the people who support them will receive the, the benefit of their spiritual labor. There is a real benefit here. Again, financial support of ministers is not simply for, you know, them to be lazy they don't have to work they don't have to do anything no the reason the church supports ministers of the gospel is so that they can spiritually minister to the people they can be focused on that and so you do receive a benefit from that you receive a spiritual benefit that is tied to the toil and the labor of those who minister in the word of god we need to care for our ministers we need to care for our ministers. Paul says this is important. If we don't do this, we'll be unfruitful. Now the final thing he says in verse 15, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. This is important. The final verse. Paul closes here by, with the, 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 the familiar subject of greeting. Paul impresses upon Titus here the need To greet one another in love. We need to greet one another in love, he says. I said this a few weeks ago when I preached in Romans 16, verse 16. This idea of greeting means more than just saying hi. It's not just acknowledging that the other person exists. It's actually recognizing our fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you notice how Paul says it here, it makes it very clear. All who are with me greet you. He's speaking about his his team of ministers, these people that worked with Paul, that traveled with Paul, that that, that ministered alongside of him. These were, were, were believers. And remember, Titus used to travel with Paul. These were people that Titus knew, personal friends in the ministry. Paul says, they all greet you. And then he says this, greet those who love us in the faith. That's an interesting thing to say. Greet those who love us in the faith. If Paul says that Titus is supposed to greet those who love them, does that mean he's not supposed to greet those who don't love him? The word love here, by the way, I, I did some research on this this week because I couldn't figure out why they why they use the word love here because the word carries really more the idea of honor or esteem. But I think it's connected to the idea of love because it's something that we you know, we love someone, we honor them, and we hold them in high esteem. That's those are, are consistent ideas. So I think that's why they use the word love here. But but Paul says, listen, those who don't honor us, those who don't love us, who don't esteem us, don't greet them. Is Paul just being petty here? No. No, no, no. Remember, Paul had warned earlier about those who were insubordinate in chapter 1, who were teaching things they should not have been teaching. He warned in chapter 3, just a couple of verses before this, about the divisive man who attempts to divide and cause factions in the church by elevating his opinions over the word of God and Paul says those people those people were to be rejected those people are to be confronted they're not to be greeted why because to greet them is to embrace them as a brother or as a sister in Christ to greet them is to consider them to be a faithful believer in Christ Paul makes this distinction. He says, these people aren't acting like believers. Don't greet them like believers, Titus. Greet those who love us, who honor us in the faith. These are enemies of the gospel. Don't greet them, but greet those who demonstrate their love for the gospel. Again, as I said earlier, that's why the central theme of this letter is so important. Paul has to go back over it again and again because you're supposed to be able to tell Christians by how they live. You should. Now I know we're not perfect and I'm not trying to suggest that. But just based on this letter to Titus, we ought to be able to recognize that Christians are those who have believed the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Christians are those who have humbled themselves under the truth of God's word as it is faithfully spoken by godly elders. Christians are those who have received God's grace in salvation and by God's grace are being trained to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Christians are those who have been saved by the mercy of God, not their own righteous works, and are daily being renewed by the Holy Spirit who lives within them. Christians are those who devote themselves to good works because they have believed in God. Christians are those who honor and love men who have ministered to them in the word of God. And Paul says, greet them. You should be able to tell the difference, Paul says. And so we need to greet one another as believers, brothers and sisters, recognizing when we see another one Who is living as a christian demonstrating their faith in these real and practical and tangible ways that paul talks about in this letter the final line here is really a prayer grace be with you all this is paul's prayer it's a blessing if you will grace be with you this is the sum and the substance of the christian life we're saved by grace we're kept by god's grace we're Sanctified by God's grace. We're equipped to minister by God's grace. We're strengthened by God's grace. And someday we'll be glorified by God's grace. Paul realizes that everything he's written, everything he's written is meaningless without the grace of God to carry it through. So he says, may God's undeserved favor rest on all who read or hear this letter. And we would agree. And affirm it, we would say in Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. May grace be upon and with you all.